Hello, this is Dr. Doug Wyatt, and this is the podcast series, Considering Christianity as a Scientist, and this is podcast number 12. For those just joining us, I am a PhD scientist, a geologist, a geophysicist, published with patents and a long history of managing major science and engineering research programs. I am a Christian. Many of my friends and acquaintances in science, technology, engineering, and many others I have chatted with on various occasions have discussed their thoughts on Christ and Christianity, a creator God the Bible and human history, and often how difficult it is to reconcile Christian belief with science. I understand and have often struggled with this myself. Science and Christian beliefs are often hard to merge, particularly in our modern technological world. Yet I know that many of you feel, sense, hear a quiet whisper, a deep-sensed need for something greater larger and more meaningful than ourselves. I want you to consider and for us to discuss that this is our Creator God calling to you through Christ and how to accept this. Therefore I offer this brief series of podcasts as a scientist and as a Christian consideration of Christianity as a scientist. In podcast 11, our previous podcast, We discussed the teachings of Jesus that was direct person-to-person teaching, or Jesus speaking to an individual in the presence of his followers and the crowds that were surrounding him. And we ended that podcast when Jesus reached a period recorded in the Bible as his transfiguration. The transfiguration is described in in the gospel books of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Please listen to podcast 11 if you have not to listen to some of Jesus' teachings up until this event. The transfiguration is often one of those events discussed by scientists and people with scientific thinking that want to hear and believe in Christianity as something that is just absurd to them. I understand that concern and want to offer these few thoughts. An event like the Transfiguration, as described in in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, can only be captured in scientific thought if you accept the premise of our very first podcast, which is the existence of a Creator God. I encourage you to review that podcast if you wish. If God is the highest thought our human abilities can envision, then the sum of all existence and energy exists together when God is near, which we very simply describe in physics as white light when considering the visible wavelengths available to humans. White light is the sum of all visible wavelengths of light to humans. But in our concept of God, we can assume that all energy was focused at that one point. When Jesus and God were talking together, Jesus was talking with his Father. So what 
Peter, James, and John saw during the Transfiguration may have been something like this. And for me as a scientist, that's good enough. I understand and accept that it happened. And this is just in physical terms. I cannot imagine nor pretend to understand the spiritual energy, the spirit of God, and how that impacts things. I know it. I feel it. I believe in it. I cannot understand it. In my mind, it helps me to understand the Spirit of God as God's active will in creation. The force of God's mind. I, I don't know personally if that is true or not, but it is what I believe. In this case, I believe it had to be the whitest light possible because there was no darkness, no evil, no presence that was acting against God's wishes at that point in time and that point in space. It was quite simply God and his son talking. And so the fact that his clothes glowed, uh, the area glowed, is not surprising given what we just discussed. This is the image I see in my mind of that event, but simply understand it by act of faith that Jesus was in the presence of his Father, the God of creation. Of course he glowed. A further consideration about the transfiguration is the people that Jesus chose to attend. Peter, James, and John, the three of the first four apostles, followers that Jesus selected. They were all fishermen. But during this transfiguration and immediately afterwards, this was the first direct mention by Jesus of his death and resurrection directly and firmly stated to his disciples. They were basically still clueless about what was going to happen, and they questioned this statement among themselves. After the transfiguration, Jesus continued his slow, steady march towards Jerusalem, and in this podcast we will discuss the teachings that are recorded, and we're going to use the book of Luke for this in this podcast, between the transfiguration and his entry into Jerusalem. And I think you will find this very interesting and meaningful. One of the first events recorded after the transfiguration is Jesus healing a boy with an evil spirit. And his father came to Jesus and said, He's my only child. He has this issue where a spirit seizes him. He screams. It throws him to convulsions so that he foams at the mouth. It scarcely ever leaves him and is destroying him. I begged your disciples to drive it out, but they could not. This is a statement condemning many of Jesus' disciples that even though they followed him and believed, their faith was not quite where it should be. And Jesus is recorded as saying, O unbelieving and perverse generation, how long shall I stay with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. Again, Jesus was alluding to the fact that he would soon be leaving. And Jesus is recorded as rebuking the evil spirit, healing the boy, and giving him back to his father. And then Jesus turned to his disciples, not just the crowd that was there, but turned to his disciples and is recorded as telling them directly 
Listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. Again, alluding to his death, but they did not understand it at this time. But yet, the next story recorded is some of his disciples arguing among themselves about which will be greatest when Jesus comes into his kingdom. And Jesus is recorded as taking a small child that was there among the followers and saying this, Whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For he who is least among you, he is the greatest. Now, from a scientific perspective, a human perspective, a social perspective, that statement typically flies in the face of what the vast majority of the world believes. And following that, one of his disciples asked him, it was John, Master, we saw a man driving out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he's not one of us. Well, that statement tells us a lot too that the disciples of Jesus were feeling a bit special, that only they should have this authority. They were still learning. And Jesus says something very interesting to them. And we have heard this phrase used across human history since. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for whoever is not against you is for you. There's another story recorded, and there have been many in between, and I, I hope you choose to read them. But this particular story also says a lot about human practice and what we should be doing. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better and it will not be taken away from her. That is a story that condemns us in our personal lives, in our technical lives, in our social lives with others, is that we choose the details. We get distracted by things that need to be done. Our lives get cluttered. And that clutter of life, so often among us scientists, is every little thing that distracts us from considering what we're discussing in these podcasts. That clutter needs to go away. And we should be like Mary, choosing that one thing to listen. Doesn't mean you give up everything else. Doesn't mean you don't do everything else. It means you choose at the time to make a decision to not clutter your thoughts, clutter your life. When you consider your beliefs, when you consider your spiritual nature, when you consider God, and when you consider the Christ as the Son of God. One of the most famous stories of the Bible comes next. 
his disciples asked him how to pray, and he again taught them the Lord's Prayer as a, a, an example of how to pray. And then he says this, Suppose one of you has a friend, and he goes to him at midnight and says, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread, because a friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I have nothing to set before him. Then the one inside answers, Don't bother me, the door is already locked, and my children are with me in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him the bread because he is his friend, Yet because of the man's boldness, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. The boldness of the friend who came to ask is what Jesus is referring to. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Another set of phrases that you are probably familiar with come from this next part of the Bible. And it's a very interesting story. Jesus still had enemies. He had thousands of followers, but he still had enemies. Mostly the intelligentsia, the religious authorities, the local political authorities of the day. Jesus was a threat to their current and trained way of thinking. He was, he was dealing with a demon in a person, and those around said, by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. Beelzebub was the local name for Satan, prince of demons. And so people tested him saying, okay, if you're doing this, give us a sign from heaven. Go back to Jesus's temptations. God should not be tempted. So Jesus was not going to do anything like this. And Jesus knew their thoughts and he said to them, any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and a house divided against itself will fall. If Satan is divided against himself, how can his kingdom stand? I say this because you claim that I drive out demons by Beelzebub. Now, if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your followers drive them out? So then they will be your judges. But if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come to you. When a strong man fully armed guards his own house, his possessions are safe. But when someone attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divides up the spoils. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not but gather with me scatters. When an evil spirit comes out of a man, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I re will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and takes seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there, and the final condition of that man is worse than the first. I believe Jesus is saying here that when God acts, it's a permanent loving gift. 
if others have similar authorities, for example, these people are claimed to have been driving out demons, whatever that, that was, they were not doing it permanently because they were driving them out in the name of Beelzebub or through his authority, and I'm using Beelzebub as the term used here for the devil, for Satan, then more demons will return to the place vacated by the one. Jesus is saying he, through the Spirit of God, the finger of God is how he references, is the only one who can do this. Jesus continued to teach others. Once again, staying at a Pharisee's house, notice that Jesus did not first wash before the meal, and he was surprised. Jesus knew what he was thinking and said to him, Now then, you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You foolish people, did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? But give what is inside the dish to the poor, and everything will be clean for you. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint, rue, and all other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you love the most important seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you because you are like unmarked graves, which men walk over without knowing it. Jesus is really condemning the religious leaders of his day. One of them said, Teacher, when you say these things, you insult us also. And Jesus replied, And you experts in the law, woe to you, because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry, and you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. Woe to you because you build tombs for the prophets and it was your forefathers who killed them. So you testify that you approve of what your forefathers did. They killed the prophets and you build their tombs. Because of this, God in his wisdom said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and others they will persecute. Therefore, this generation will be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets that has been shed since the beginning of the world from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, this generation will be held responsible for it all. Woe to you experts in the law, because you have taken away the key to knowledge. You yourselves have not entered, and you have hindered those who were entering. When Jesus said these things and began to leave, he had made enemies of them all, and they began to oppose him fiercely, and to besiege him with questions, waiting to catch him and something he might say. This was the real beginning of the local scribes, Pharisees, religious intelligentsia of the day, beginning to fiercely attack Jesus in such a way as to destroy his authority. As we have mentioned in earlier podcasts, the closer Jesus got to his trial, crucifixion, and his teachings in Jerusalem, the edgier he got. He began to cut to the quick in his teaching about how people should act 
and where the religious leaders of the day had failed. In our previous podcasts, we had a discussion of Jesus and his teaching through parables, and we covered only seven or eight of the key parables that were synonymous between all three major synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. However, Luke has an additional 12 or 15 parables that come at this same time where Jesus is teaching. These are in chapters 14, 15, and 16 and are well worth reading. But I will pick up after these parables with an additional teaching of Jesus. Many Pharisees had heard these teachings and it, the Bible, Bible reports this. The Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of men, but God knows your hearts. What is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. And he went on to say, The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached and everyone is forcing his way into it. It is easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the least stroke of a pen to drop out of the law. And he goes on to say, Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery, and the man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. I do not know why Jesus brought that particular uh, commandment up at this time, but he did, and so it must have been discussed in the previous parables. Jesus then tells the story of the rich man and Lazarus, and then he discusses sin, faith, and duty. Jesus said to his disciples, things that cause people to sin are bound to come, but woe to that person through whom they come. It would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around his neck than for him to cause one of these little ones to sin. So watch yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in a day and seven times comes back to you and says, I repent, forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, Increase our faith. Jesus replied, If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, Be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. Suppose one of you had a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Would he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, Come along now and sit down to eat? Would he not rather say, Prepare my supper, get yourself ready, and wait on me? while I eat and drink, after that you may eat and drink. Would he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants, we have only done our duty. Once again, harsh teachings from Jesus on what he was expecting from his servants. It is also during this same time that Jesus talks about the coming of the kingdom of God. All during these discussions with this group or, or association of Pharisees, the Bible states, Once, having been asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, The kingdom of God does not come with your careful observation, 
nor will people say, here it is or there it is, because the kingdom of God is within you. That's very important to us as scientific thinkers. We seek the kingdom of God, and we have an innate understanding, I believe, that it's something we change in ourselves and something we accept in ourselves. I don't expect to see it in our physical world. Jesus says it won't be there. It's not going to be a kingdom that we would recognize by that term. It's something that's inside of us. And I believe that many of my associates whom have asked about the kingdom of God, the concept of God, belief, a spiritual nature, are looking for it in themselves. This is what Jesus says, and he says it plainly right here. Jesus is also somewhat predicting what will happen after he is gone. Then he said to his disciples, The time is coming when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but you will not see it. Men will tell you, There he is, or here he is. Do not go running off after them, for the Son of Man in his day will be like the lightning which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Jesus, in effect, is speaking about his return. Continuing from where we just read, Just as it was in the days of Noah, so also will it be in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating, drinking, marrying, and being given in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. Then the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, no one who is on the roof of his house with his goods inside should go down to get them. Likewise, no one in the field should go back for anything. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever tries to keep his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. I tell you, on that night, two people will be in one bed, one will be taken, and the other left. Two women will be grinding grain together, and one will be taken, and the other left. And Jesus gives a very cryptic answer when he's asked about this. Where, Lord, they ask, he replied, where there is a dead body, there the vultures will gather. Jesus goes on and has several other parables recorded. He again predicts his death. He took the twelve aside and told them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be handed over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. On the third day he will rise again. And again, it's recorded that his disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them, and they did not know what he was talking about. Jesus leaves and passes through Jericho on his way to Jerusalem. We have the story of Zacchaeus, the tax collector. We have the parable of the ten minas. The story of the ten minas is very interesting. People often use it to justify a variety of getting rich schemes. That's really not what it was talking about. I encourage you to read that. And then Jesus comes to his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. 
This is where we will pick up in our next podcast, and I thank you for listening.